Sports. We're bound for the 200 Brass from Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, this Monday edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Of late, uh, roughly over the past two weeks, the Atlanta Braves have signed four players who are either arbitration eligible or pre-arbitration eligible. They're not even arbitration eligible. Well, one of them. It's Julio Tehran. I'll just tell you right now. It's Julio Tehran. Uh, they've signed four of this sorts, these sorts of players to multi-year deals. Question. Do these deals make sense for the Atlanta Braves? Other question. Are these good deals for the players? Probably in the latter case. Yes. Uh, third question. Do these deals... Are they likely to create a ripple effect in the rest of baseball, the west, the way that teams and players do business in the rest of baseball? All three of these questions, or variations on them, uh, are are ones that I present to Dave Cameron, and he answers them and more, really, uh, because we use these uh, this situation with these Atlanta Braves, uh, these young Atlanta Braves players, as an entree into larger discussion, as we do. That's the conversation. That's the bulk of the conversation, which is to follow. One programming note, uh, I understand that some of you have become enamored of Dave Cameron's dog in recent weeks, recent months. However, she wa- she was away uh, for this episode. She was away on a she, had a, she had a social obligation. We'll say she had a social obligation. She was not around. So it is just two men, just two men in their early 30s talking about baseball or mostly that. Okay. Yes, but that's what it is. It's Fangraphs Audio. Uh, it features managing editor Dave Cameron. And it begins right now. Good, are you? Good. What's going on? Not too much. You sounding good? Thanks. Yeah. You feel good? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Hey, uh, I don't know. This I may cut this out, or maybe I didn't cut it out. Probably didn't, because it's probably, it, probably not. Would have required work, but uh, I was thinking of doing for post today, because you know I've completed zips now. I've completed the zips post, and I've also completed. Uh, last week we did um, a series of posts, uh, the player profile game. Right. Um, and uh, so now I have fewer responsibilities in the front page. I was thinking of doing today, um, translating the. Uh, the betting odds into, or you know, the betting lines for the World Series championship into, uh, like, World Series odds. That's not a terrible idea. <laughs> well, You've had worse. Yeah, I mean, where's the bar? That's uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, I think you should do a post this week on Steamer's Jose Abreu projection. Oh, okay, yeah, I'll do because that. that's up your alley, and uh, I know they revised it like massively upward on Friday, and then they revised it a little bit downward on Saturday. So it might be interesting, like email Jared and kind of find out why they did a couple revisions and what the methodology is. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I want to do that too. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Thanks for the idea. You're welcome. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have some other stuff to talk to you at the end there, but uh, let's talk about um, the baseball. Yes, baseball. Where shall we start? Let's talk about the Atlanta Braves. I want to they, talk about they're, the, they're doing they're doing stuff. They're doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, they're providing yeah. ample content. Well, all right. Yeah. So, a weird thing about the Atlanta Braves, right? And Eno wrote about this maybe two weeks ago now. Uh, when Eno, well, and, and we talked about it on the podcast, but traditionally the uh, Atlanta is a file to trial team. Yes. And which means that at a certain point, um, 
if you haven't reached terms uh, with with if you're a, if you're a you know if you're a player with Atlanta and you haven't reached terms with the team to avoid arbitration, uh, then the team says, okay, that was the last day to negotiate, and now we will we'll see you at the we'll see you at the trial. Uh, yes, that's uh, traditionally that's what it means. The general understanding, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, but um, and there, there, it seemed as though uh, they had uh, passed that date with three high-profile arbitration eligible players this year. Yes. Yes. Jason Hayward. Actually, four, four, I think, right? Who's the fourth? Freeman, uh, Kimbrell, Hayward, and uh, yeah, maybe just three. Those are oh, those are the three yeah. big ones in, in any case. Right. And then, well, because of course they signed another extension. Right. Yeah, but Julio Tehran was not our eligible. Yeah. So. Yeah. Three. Anyway, proceed. But then, right. So, well, as you note, then they they signed all of them anyway, and then uh, I mean to varying contracts. But the Freddie Freeman contract was uh, the extension was rather big, and uh, and uh, the Kimbrel one, um, the Kimbrel one is ultimately what forty two. Yeah, four and forty-two, and could get up to fifty-eight depending on uh, various incentives. Right, and which is, uh, I mean, that's let's see, four forty-two. This off-season, we've seen contracts to like Grant, uh, not Grant Brisby, Grant Balfour, um, <laughs> uh, for what, what was it, one or two, two twenty-four for him, or one thir- one twelve? Two twelve. Two twelve. Oh yeah, yeah. two twelve. That's nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, well, he's also not Craig Kimbrell. He's not Craig Kimbrell. I guess no one else yeah. really is Craig Kimbrell. Yeah. Um, right. But the point is that um, those free agents are veteran free agents, and you expect them to get market value, where traditionally we don't expect arbitration eligible players to do that. Uh, but it seems as though Kimbrell, for example, has. Uh, we'll start with him. Um, is that market value? Is this another case, as you sort of uh, mentioned with regard to the Freeman signing, of a market correction, or is it something else? Well, I think what we're seeing right now is that there's uh, two different markets for uh, closers, the arbitration market and the free agent market, and they're going very different directions. The arbitration market is continuing to pay escalating salaries to all players, really, but closers especially, uh, or at least we're, we're noticing that the uh, the arbitration prices for closers are are significantly higher than they have been in the past. Uh, part of this is because Greg Kimball and uh, what we're going to see with the role this Chapman. Some of these guys are putting up historic performances, uh, you know, some of the best closer seasons of all time. So they're, they're going in with numbers that justify really high numbers relative to previous closers. But uh, we're seeing some really uh, significant uh, arbitration filing numbers for, for guys who have racked up a lot of saves. Uh, and then the free agent market is doing the opposite and you know, going away from paying for saves. So we're kind of seeing this divergence where uh, it's almost better, uh, not entirely, but it's almost better to be arbitration eligible uh, if you're a, a guy with a bunch of saves than to be on the free agent market. Now, Kimbrell would have probably gotten more than 442 as a free agent, uh, and I think this does represent a little bit of a, a market correction uh, where now we're seeing the type of deal that used to just go to position players and starting pitchers uh, get handed out to a reliever. I would be surprised if too many other relievers were able to command a four-year deal like Kimbrell was um, because he's such an outlier and such an exception in terms of uh, his performance relative to the rest of normal baseball closers. Right. I mean, it should be noted he's averaged, what, let's see, six, uh, eight. Uh, you know, he's averaged close, to, uh, roughly three wins per season over the last three years. 
Yeah, he's been pretty pretty good. I mean, I think if you look at his career numbers, he has an ERA of like 1.2 over what like 220 innings or something. Like, uh, you know, he's he's been pretty dominant, and I think there's no question that uh, he deserves to be paid like the best closer in the game. I think the question here for the Braves is, did they actually need to do this? So they already controlled the next three years of Kimbrel's rights because he had three arbitration years. Now they were varying expense, and and they've locked in. Uh, prices that they might deem to be below what he would have gotten if he stayed healthy and, and continued to pitch well. Uh, but, you know, they, they've probably paid around $30 million for his arbitration years, which means they bought out one free agent year for $12 million four years from now, and then they have the option for a second free agent year five years from now at another 12 or $13 million. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how likely it is that in four years, Craig Kimbrell is still going to be healthy, effective, and worthy of a $12 million contract. Like, you know, there's certainly some chance that he's Billy Wagner or Francisco Rodriguez or Joe Nathan or one of these closers who's had a pretty decent career and stayed healthy and, uh, you know, has, has shown some longevity. But a lot of closers are, uh, you know, kind of flash in the pan, uh, you know, here today, gone tomorrow types. And I wouldn't be too terribly shocked if at some point in the next three years, Craig Kimball got hurt and lost effectiveness and became a shell of what it used to be, and all of a sudden that $12 million free agent season doesn't look like such a bargain anymore. Craig, uh, if I'm wrong, did we not have a – was there not a piece recently at the Harbaugh Times uh, looking at the ways in which teams can actually save money by signing free agent closers? And uh, yeah. it sort of seems to dovetail uh, nicely with this conversation we're having. Yeah, so Matt Murphy wrote a piece talking about how you could potentially uh, keep your – prices down for your setup guys by signing a proven established free agent closer, uh, you know, to like six or seven million dollars, whatever, to soak up the ninth inning saves, and then your David Robertson or Tyler Clippert or whoever, you know, uh, quality eighth inning setup guy you have going for arbitration won't get as much money because he doesn't have save totals to, to jack up his prices in arbitration. I, I think this is like a nice side benefit of maybe having a proven closer, but I don't think this is necessarily the plan that teams are saying, I want an old mediocre pitcher pitching my most important <laughs> high leverage innings because I'm trying to save a couple million dollars on my setup guy who may or may not blow out his arm anyway. I think in general, teams are just putting their best, the guys who they think are the best in their most important situations. And, and a lot of times the experience factor leads managers to believe that their best reliever is their oldest reliever. Right. Although the way the pitchers age, that's not really the best assumption, isn't it? I mean, I, or, or perhaps now it seems like with work Jeff Zimmerman has done recently, um, it's the way everybody ages, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, something to the fact of experience being a, a, a help to pitchers, and I think pitchers do age a little differently than, uh, or, or maybe the better way to say it would be the pitchers age unpredictably in, in some sense, where you see. Uh, there's not an obvious aging curve that every pitcher follows that's, you know, peak at 27 and then slow decline. Some pitchers get better in their 30s and they, you know, if you add a new pitch or if you uh, make some mechanical tweaks, they can make a really big difference. And so, uh, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not necessarily advocating for every team just putting the 24 year old in the closer position, but I do think there's, uh, you know, something to be said for, uh, closing being a young man's game, almost like with catchers, where we, you know, we don't see a lot of mid 30s starting catchers. You don't see a lot of, you know, long term, uh, tenured 35 year old closers who've been in their position for 10 years. There are a few, but they're pretty rare. Yeah, right. Remember Rob Nen? Remember how good yeah. Rob Nen was for a couple of years? He, he, he was awesome for a little while. Yeah, right. And then he just, uh, he just dissolved. I guess yeah. he had arm problems. This is normally what happens. So, so I think what we generally see 
is that pitchers who are selected for being closers or relief pitchers in general are in the bullpen because of some defect that won't allow them to start. Now, sometimes that's just they aren't very good at getting out opposite-handed hitters, so they need to be in a specialist role where they can, you know, use their uh, limited weapons in matchups in order to get the most out of their stuff, but that's not usually the case with dominant closers. Usually dominant closers are good against both sides. They get everybody out. So if you have a, a guy who's, you know, dominant against right-handers and left-handers, but he's not starting, he probably already has some health problems. There's probably a reason why he's not throwing 100 pitches every five days, uh, and I think eventually those things catch up to him. And we, So if we start out with a group that's selected for not having the endurance to be able to start, it would make sense that they're going to break down at some point in the not-too-distant future. Yeah. All right, so to the, back to the larger uh, conversation with regard to this uh, triumvirate of arbitration-eligible Atlanta players, uh, as we said, Hayward, Freeman, and Craig Kimbrell, we're all, um, uh, they all sort of passed this date with Atlanta, um, which, as we've noted, is uh, historically a file-to-trial team, and yet they've all signed uh, pretty sizable contracts in the meantime. Yeah, but they signed multi-year deals. So I think there is a distinction to be made here where you, you file and trial teams are generally saying, uh, the point behind file and trial really is, so if you say, I'm not going to negotiate past this date, that means that the number that the player files for, the agent files for, has to be defendable in court. You're basically telling them, you can't file a high number just to artificially inflate the midpoint. You have to come in with a number that you can go in front of the arbiter and you think you can win with. So theoretically, file and trial teams want to bring down the player's uh, filing number. That's the goal of this. Uh, so instead of maybe 12 million, you file for 10 million or whatever because you think this is a number I can actually win with. Uh, and so you, you, you're, um, making it less likely that the player will just file an outrageously high number. When you're doing a multi-year contract, the actual filing numbers don't matter so much. So like in the Braves case, all these deals they did were all multi-year contracts which bought out not only this season, but next year or, you know, in Freddie Freeman's case, the next eight years. Um, so I think, you know, it's not so much that they just were a file and trial team and then said, ah, never mind, we're going to change our minds. They stuck to their guns and said, we're not doing a one-year deal after this point. We will discuss a multi-year deal, which buys out either future arbitration or future arbitration and free agent years. And I think, you know, at that point, having a hard and fast rule and saying, well, we can't negotiate past this point would just be foolish. Okay, yeah. All right. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Uh, so they're going to be good. I mean, those guys are all good, but they're all uh, more expensive now, too. So. Yeah, but I mean, they would have been more expensive anyway, right? Like, you know, I think that's this is one of the tough things. If you have a lot of good young talent, it eventually becomes expensive. Yeah, right. Because other teams uh, want those players too. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that there's not a huge pool of players who are both good and in cheap in perpetuity. Yeah, well, none. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that doesn't really exist. Yeah, I mean, Tim Wakefield, for a few years, when he had that auto-renewing contract with the Red Sox where they could just pick up a $4.5 million option for him every year they wanted to, uh, he was pretty good and cheap in perpetuity, but, you know, that was maybe the last of those deals. Right. Yeah, he he was uh, unique for at least one reason. Probably, uh, no, at least two reasons. That contract and also the fact that he threw a knuckleball. Right. So, two reasons. Yeah. And I'm sure so, that uh, he, his family knows him to be unique for other reasons, too, that we will never know. I would imagine those are probably not the only two unique things about Tim Wakefield. Yeah, right. Um, okay, uh, Julio Tehran also signed a contract. So this is four players. They've uh, extended over the course of, what, week and a half, two weeks, something like that? Yeah, I don't know if I would term Jason Hayward's deal an extension. It's a two-year contract that buys out the two-year beers they already had control over, so that wasn't really so much an extension as it was. 
pre-buying next year. Well, what's it, what, what is the language I can use that applies to all four of the players? Um, yeah, I, I guess you can call them a multi-year contract. They're okay, yes. So uh, Tehran is, what, $32 million? Uh, yeah. Yeah, five Eight, years, $32 million. Five years, $32 million. Hey, Tehran's strange, right? Because uh, he was, uh, you know, for years you'd look at the uh, Mark Hewlett's rankings or at the Baseball America rankings, um, sort of in the same way that you might uh, Martin Perez, the, the Rangers prospect. And for years you just say, well, this guy's the best pitcher in the organization. And then uh, – but then you look at the numbers and they, you know, they weren't always like dominant. And then he, you know, he had a couple rough, um, uh, you know, a couple rough goes around in uh, the major leagues. I feel like uh, before yeah. he, uh, before he really made an impact. His first two cups of coffee in the big leagues were uh, were tarry and uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a coffee snob, but like whatever words you could use to describe, they were gas station coffee. Yeah, right. The kind you would get from sitting in a pot all afternoon. That, those are the kinds of cups of coffee he had in the big leagues. Right, but then uh, last year, especially I think especially towards the beginning of the season, uh, but uh, he's you know certainly uh, the final product too uh, was one of uh, quality, higher quality, uh, art- artisanally shade grown, shade grown, uh, fresh roasted coffee. Right. Uh, yeah, I think fair trade. He, he had like that really amazing spring training, right, where he was like one of the stories of spring training last year, and he was striking everybody out. And then the, I think that didn't really continue in April. It looked like he was another one of these spring training mirages where the strikeouts went away and he wasn't using his breaking ball and he was still just a fastball changeup guy. And then from like May on, he was really good. Um, so I think your your idea of him only being a first half story, not maybe not quite so true. But I do think uh, he did oh, yeah, show. You're right. Wow, you're right. He, yeah, I'm looking yeah, at it now. He, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, I didn't do the research. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I didn't we, research we, it at all. We forgive you. Uh, <laughs> no, I think like Tehran is a good young pitcher. There's no, there's few questions that I'm among the best like under 24 pitchers in baseball. He would be on the list. The question is how good he is and whether the Braves need to do this now, right? So he's coming off a season of 3.20 ERA and he's uh, what a couple years away from arbitration. So he wasn't in line for a big raise uh, this winter. The question would be, could you have waited, let Tehran's uh, strand rate regress a little bit and have him probably post a higher ERA in 2014 than he did in 2013 and maybe get him for, you know, the same or less money or similar money in a year without swallowing the risk of doing this deal now? I think there's a, a decent case to be made that uh, you could potentially argue that, you know, Tehran's in for some regression and probably wouldn't cost substantially more 12 months from now than he would today. On the other hand, the rate we've seen inflation in Major League Baseball going, uh, if he has a good year, his price could double. And so I think the Braves just said, you know what, uh, maybe we could wait a year and save $5 million or, you know, not take on some extra risk that he blows at his arm. And, you know, we are subjecting ourselves to a total of like $30 million in risk. But there's also a risk if we, you know, if he has another really excellent year and is, you know, has now two great seasons, a 23, 24-year-old pitcher, he's going to want a $100 million contract next winter. And so we're, we're going to save ourselves the potential breakout and kind of buy ahead of time. And this is a little bit what the Diamondbacks did with Paul Goldschmidt last year, uh, where he was, he had been, you know, a, a good player, not yet a great player. Uh, you know, there was some reason to think that, uh, he might regress and instead he almost had an MVP season and in the five year $32 million deal they gave him last winter looks like a stroke of genius. So I think the Braves are essentially buying against an, a breakout or another, 
uh, really high-quality season, which would have made him very hard to extend. And they've certainly taken on some risk in doing it, but for $32 million over five years, the risk is pretty minimized. You know, it seems – so what we're dealing here with uh, – what we're talking about here is the sort of ways in which teams have to contend. Almost a situation where having a good young player – is not necessarily – I mean it's good for your team, but it creates other questions that you have to answer, right? Because you say, well, he's quite, he's a quality young player. Uh, do we pay him now and therefore um, lose you know, some of the immediate discount will we have? But alternatively, do we maybe – are we investing in a player, like you, know, like you said, with the Goldschmidt deal, maybe the philosophy behind the Tehran deal, where we're actually – we'll still be underpaying for the talent we'll be getting? It's this is still an issue or a question that teams are having to answer. Yeah, I think like I mean you know this is speculative. I don't have like a, you know on the record quotes that I can use to prove this, but my feeling in talking with some people and kind of analyzing some of these deals and kind of seeing the way the baseball is spending their money, my feeling is that teams have kind of made a conscious decision to pay for players with less information than they ever have before. Like essentially. As you let a player go through their arbitration years and get towards free agency, uh, you're gathering more and more information and you get more confident about a player's skills. So by the time they get to free agency, you have a pretty good knowledge of what this player is, uh, and you, you pay for that. I mean, you, you're going year to year with a guy for six years, uh, it ends up costing you a lot of money because he gets to the open market and he, everyone can bid on him and he's like very expensive. So you pay, uh, a real premium for the information gained along the time, uh, and the risk that you didn't have to, you know, uh, having blown out his knee long or whatever, you know, like all those risks that go along with, you know, signing a guy early. Now it seems like teams are saying, you know what, I don't need as much information about this player as I used to because the price I'm getting uh, justifies that I can have four or five of these guys on my con- on my roster. I can afford four or five of these young, young guys on multi-year long-term deals. And even if two of them go bust and they blow out their knees or they blow out their arms and they just stop playing well or whatever – I'm going to get such a big discount on the three that don't bust. I'm going to save so much money on those that it's I'm totally fine carrying these two players that I wish I wouldn't have uh, signed the long-term deals. And I think, like, if you look at Toronto a couple of years ago, uh, you know, they signed, uh, what, Edwin Encarnacion. Uh, you know, he was not a super young player, but, you know, not a ton of information at the point that he was having a really great season. It, it could have been considered a fluke at the time. Uh, they signed him to a 327 deal. They did the same thing with Jose Batista after like one really good year. They gave him, whatever, 565. And then they gave Adam Lind, like, not too long into his career, like 417 or something. So they, they did like three of these, uh, contracts for young hitters that are, uh, you know, early information or not a, not a long track record of success. The Lind deal doesn't look so great right now. He hasn't produced as well as they had hoped he would. He hasn't really turned into a great player. Uh, you know, so they, they probably lost, I don't know, $5 million on the Adam Lynn deal. But they probably saved $100 million on the Jose Batista and Edwin Encarnacion deals by not letting those guys get to free agency and controlling two of the best right-handed power hitters in baseball for a total of like $20 million a year. Uh, they saved a ton of money on the breakout guys. And so I think what we're seeing now is teams are saying, I'm willing to lose 5 or $10 million on four or five guys uh, for the rights to save $100 million on one. But do, do you think that, uh, you know, if – if Edwin Encarnacion had that same season, that same breakout season, and was the same age as he was during that breakout season, if he had it in 2014, do you think he'd sign? He would sign a deal for 927, or do you think he could get more than that? 927, no. 27 million. Wait, 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 wait a second. Wait, not not nine, nine, not 927. Three, yes, 327. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think $27 million over three years for a player having that kind of season is probably out the window. I don't think we're going to see too many more players in the midst of like the kind of year Encarnacion was having uh, saying, you know what, I don't want to go test my mar- mar- skills on the open market. I'm going to sign now. Uh, I think those kinds of deals are probably going away. And I think one of the interesting things about the Tehran deal is, is shows that we're continuing to maybe move away from uh, even like the Martin Perez deal of a few months ago, which was signed in November, Martin Perez, very similar to Tehran, as you know, noted, their numbers are pretty similar. They're, they're similar in age, similar in prospect pedigree. Uh, Martin Perez got four years and 12 million. He didn't even get his final arbitration year guaranteed. That's a team option. And then the, the Rangers got two team options on his first two free agent years. So the, the Rangers didn't have to really make any commitment to get a potential bargain down the line. The Braves, with a similar kind of player, had to give him $32 million guaranteed. Uh, you know, I think we are going to see a move away from these um, kind of $12, $15, million, $20 million deals that buy out, that at least give the teams the rights to free agent years in exchange wait, for so small guarantees. Are, are older players maybe happy about this trend insofar as uh, if, if, if it becomes um, – if the market – is allowing these younger players to get paid like this. Is it? Is there a possible situation where um, older players are maybe f- finding themselves um, being signed in situations where they wouldn't have in the past because a team doesn't want to necessarily invest all that money in a young player? Mm, okay, I so, don't know that I have so you noted that uh, Perez, Martin Perez, uh, did not necessarily. I mean, you yeah. made a lot of money, but relative to what Tehran did just a, a couple months later, uh, his, his contract. And, and the Freeman deal yeah. you noted is perhaps a situation where we see young players getting paid er, earlier and earlier on. Um, so, but if, if, if a, yeah. you know, if you have a certain player, if another team has a Freddie Freeman type talent, says, ugh, we just don't know if we want to invest all that money, maybe they'll, they'll look to signing a, a, a veteran sort of player on a you know a year-to-year basis, as opposed to uh, signing a, a multi-year contract with a younger player again with with less information about him. Uh, well, I think so. I think the opposite is actually happening. Like so, in the post I did last week about kind of the where the spending has been going in baseball, I noted like in 2008, teams spent 1.25 million billion dollars on players aged 31 to 35, kind of like the post-peak but still productive guys. Uh, in 2013, that was 1.14 billion. So it went down like 110, 120 million dollars on players in that age range. While the 26 to 30 guys went from 750 million to 1.25 billion. So it was a 500 million dollar increase on age 26 to 30 players and a 120 million dollar decrease on 31 to 35 year old players. So I think we're seeing a, a an absolute shift in where the money is going in Major League Baseball, and it's going to younger guys. It's going to guys on the early side of their 30s and not on the later side. Um, so I don't think we're seeing a lot of instances where teams are saying, I have a good young player. I'd <laughs> well, rather have a Lyle Overbay. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't know that I have too many yeah. examples of that happening. Yeah, right. So, but I do think like that, so it's going to be interesting to see how the players react to this trend, right? So like historically unions have been known for, uh, shifting money towards tenure. Guys who've been in the union for a really long time and the Major League Baseball Players Association has acted similarly where you know, young players, uh, even really great ones, haven't gotten paid until they reach free agency and they, you know, get money for their 10th or 12th year or something along those lines. That's when they really start getting paid is when they've been, you know, 
seasoned major league veterans with long track records. Uh, the money that's going to young players, as I noted, is coming out of the pockets of older players. So uh, veterans who used to get to the free agent market, and I think we can see this right now with Nelson Cruz and Irvin Santana and Kendris Morales and some of these guys who had expectations of really large contracts aren't finding the money they thought they was going to be there, uh, partially because they're not as good as they think they are, but also because teams are reallocating their money to younger players and, and signing pre-arb guys to long-term deals instead. So they don't have as much money to throw at mediocre free agents. Whether the association wants this trend to continue or not, I don't know. I think it's actually good for the game in order to have most of your money going to more productive players, and you'll probably end up with uh, a larger quantity of slightly overpaid young guys who may or may not live up to their potential. And might, you know, maybe Julio Tehran won't be worth thirty million dollars in the next five years. Maybe he's only worth twenty million. So you're gonna have a slight overpay there for the Braves, but it's not gonna upset fans in the same way that giving you know Mike Hampton one hundred and fifty million dollars did in Colorado or you know, the Barry Zito contract. So you're going to have fewer of these disaster deals where the older free agent declines and becomes, uh, you know, an albatross and, and a pariah in the city, and you're going to have a few of these, like, Adam Lynn-type contracts where the guy isn't quite as good as you think he is and maybe you wasted $5 million. I think this but at least is a, was, a pretty good uh, trade-off for the sport, There was though. the hint, the whiff of upside to the contract, whereas, like, that Mike Hampton deal, and I think, uh, the, wasn't there a Denny Nagel deal right around there, too? <laughs> Yeah, yeah right. they, they, they signed them together, yeah. The best case scenario was that they were worth as much as they were being paid, that they produced as much value as they were being paid. That was kind of like the best case scenario with those signings, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things we've noted about the free agent market over the last decade or so is that there's no upside to these deals. Like, if they work out perfectly, you get your money back. And if they don't work out, you lose your shorts. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why I think teams are moving away from these huge contracts for declining veteran free agents is because the returns on them have been really terrible. And so if you're a, if you're a major league GM and you say, I have $250 million in, in contracts that I can give out this winter, I can give it to one 31 year old second baseman who's going to be, you know, 40 by the time this contract ends, or I can give it to like three really good young players who are going to be 32 when the deal ends. You're much better off spreading it around, giving it to the younger guys, keeping their prime years, and then, you know, surrounding those young core that you, you've developed and kept with kind of, you know, role player free agents that you get on one or two year deals than mm-hmm. trying to build your team hey, around. Hey, uh, speaking of, um, um, I guess, sir, trying to identify patterns in spending, um, one of those is, uh, uh, um, involves the Los Angeles Dodgers and the amount of money they've spent on Cuban, uh, or they've given to Cuban players. Uh, they signed uh, just this past week. They yeah. signed, um, oh boy, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> no, Aris, oh boy, Arisbel, is he good? Ara Barena, Ar- Ara Barena, Spongey. Uh, yeah. Right. Oh yes, right. The shortstop who can't right. hit. The one who's compared to um, Jose Iglesias for multiple reasons. Right, right. Yeah, or Ray or Dodo. Yeah, and the, one the, of those the defense guys, does yeah. seem to be excellent. Um, yeah. But uh, I guess, well, I guess the, the thing with Arborena is that he's not going to be in the major leagues this year. Probably not. Right. So they're going to have uh, Alex, Alexander not, yeah. Guerrero starting at second. Uh, there's some questions about how good Alexander Guerrero might actually be. Uh, but the, the, the Dodgers gave uh, Arborena $25 million, it looks like. Yeah, that's a lot of money. That's I mean, a lot of money. Yeah, I think, I mean, the Dodgers are certainly operating on a cost is no object, uh, especially when it comes to deals like this, where, you know, with Lossiel Puig, they blew out the, uh, competition with Guerrero. Apparently they were the top bidder by quite a bit. The Hinjin Ryu, they were the top bidder by a lot. 
um, you know, I think when it comes to international spending where it doesn't account against luxury tax, uh, and it's just acquiring young players who, if it works out, I mean, the Puy and the Ryu deals look fantastic right now, um, where you're controlling a player for six years, and you say, you know what, maybe my initial investment of 30, 40, 50 million dollars is pretty high, but I'm gonna, you know, get a player, an asset that's worth 100, 150 million, if he, if he's as good as we think he is, you know, this isn't a terrible place to throw your money around. Terrible place to throw your money around and be around a campfire. Cause it's probably gonna burn. That, yeah, right. That's, yeah, that's not, right. Uh, coins. Maybe your, well, your you entire could, uh, wealth is in You know, change. number of European nations. Uh, you know, like there's a two a two euro piece. Um, Canadians also have a, they have they call it the toonie, I believe. There's a loonie and a toonie. Yeah, yeah the loonie. Well, they have the the, the loonie and the toonie. Yes, my 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 Canadian roommate when I was younger uh, introduced me to them, but I, I, it did not raise my uh, thought that Canada was uh, America's hat. When they had a yeah. coin called the Looney and the Toonie, uh, it, it reinforced my bias <laughs> that we were the superior uh, American. Uh, only country. one of the two countries, though, has produced Ryan Gosling, so that's something to consider. Um, listen, you've hit. Listen, you've hit uh, the thirty-minute yeah. threshold, which typically means you've fulfilled your obligation. Uh, three quick points. Three quick points. Uh, you know, you can give okay. just a sentence. Uh, you wrote about Mike Trout last week. Uh, you know, we spent quite a bit of this particular conversation. Uh, discussing uh, what players are getting before uh, they hit either before they hit arbitration or before they get deep into arbitration. Trout's entering his year three season, his third season. Um, he's oh, he's been the best player in baseball the last two years. It seems like he could only be cheaper. I mean, he the, if you were to sign a deal now versus you know. He's not going to be – he can't be better this next season than he's been his first two seasons. His value has to go down a little bit. I'm supposed to give a one-sentence <laughs> answer to a five-minute question? You just say yes or no. <laughs> uh, no, no, his value really. could go up monetarily Ugh. because he'd have more leverage. Yeah, not, his, his baseball value could go down and okay. his baseball he's, cost he's, could yeah. go up. Well, you were talking – you said that three, uh, 10-3 – 10300 is not uh is not at all impossible thinking about a Mike Trout extension. Yeah, I I think if they sign him to a deal before, you know, the, the All-Star break, so like maybe not by opening day, but some point in April or May or June or something, uh it's going to be 9 or 10 years and okay. in the range right. of 250 to uh, Derek Jeter's retiring. Uh Derek Jeter, <laughs> curiously Derek Jeter Hooray. uh went to arbitration with the Yankees uh in one of his first Arbel I think maybe his first Arbel triple season and won. I think he he didn't sign an extension yeah. until like his yeah. last year before free agency, didn't he? Yeah. I think he went to arbitration. Well, with I, I know I think he won maybe. I think he won. I think he won one time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think this is a, a good example of how things are changing. A player like Derek right, Jeter, right, he would sign because uh, you have a guy who, um, and I think Jeff Sullivan did a good job illustrating this uh, at the end of last week. Uh, even if he hasn't been a great shortstop, he's still been a he's still been a, a perfectly fine defensive player overall. Um, but uh, right. who, also, that sort of guy with offensive ability is good for your baseball team. Okay, yeah, there was good. good. Hey, here's favorite. another question too. I was reading about Todd Van Poppel. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. You know, Todd Van Poppel oh, actually had like a ten-year career. 
He did. Most of that was based on him being the number one pick overall. Whatever. Yeah, right. We can and he, well, he actually had a couple good seasons in relief too. I think they were, but by, by WAR actually is he, he. I think he, he did, pitched yeah. like maybe two and a half seasons in relief, and those were roughly his best two and a half seasons. Yeah. Yeah, right. he was pretty good for, um, a, for a little he's while. A, it's an interesting thing. Like, I, it, it, well, with Ty Van Poppel, I, I always think of this with Oliver Perez, too, and why the Mets – I feel the Mets never tried him in the bullpen, or if they did, it was only sparingly. Yeah. And I don't they think the Pirates not. did either before that. Yeah. No, he, did, he didn't – And he was really good. open until last year in Seattle. Yeah, so there you go. Why don't you – He was excellent. Yeah, they should have done it. Really. Anyway, Ty Van Poppel, uh, there's speculation – uh, that one of the reasons that he maybe did not have a great career was that he signed a major league contract um, as a drafted player out of high school, which uh, compelled the yes. uh, compelled Oakland to maybe push him ahead uh, more quickly than would have made sense. He did not have a chance to develop, and therefore he didn't have the proper tools to succeed. Correct. This was a problem for a I lot of I feel like did maybe a similar thing happened to Willie Mopena. Is that a possibility? Yep, that that is a possibility. And oh, Delman okay. Young. Has it happened? Is, uh, is it this thing that's happened? Uh, I mean, well, we use Delman Young. Has it happened since Delman Young? Were our teams to stop? Are they going to stop doing that because it doesn't help anyone? Uh, they're no longer allowed in the CBA. You are no longer allowed to give a major league contract to a drafted player. So this this is over because major league. Did it ever work out? Did Strasburg sign a major league deal? Uh uh, he, might have, yeah. he may have. I, I think he, uh, yeah, I think he may have been the last class before the new CBA. Um, yeah, some of these deals do work out because the guys are close to the major leagues and they didn't need a lot of seasoning. But for, I think the problem was really for like giving it to high school kids, like 18 year olds who you now need to have in the majors in four years because they only have three option years. So you can only send them to the minors until they were 20, basically, or 21. And then they had to be major league ready at 22. So if they got hurt or they didn't develop as fast, then you were screwed. Uh, so I think giving it to a college kid, not as big a deal. Giving it to a high school kid or in William O'Pagan's case, a 16-year-old, right, that's a little crazy. Um, here's the problem. Uh, it doesn't help the player either. He actually, I mean, from what you hear about Todd Van Poppel's ability as a high school player, you thought, well, this guy is one of the best there's going to be. And uh, he turned into nothing. Uh, well, it, it helps the player uh, financially, so it gets them to the majors quicker. It guarantees that the team can't just mm-hmm. stash them in the minors for service time reasons. Um, it gets them uh, pension benefits, oh, so if you're on the major league roster and then you're on the 40-man roster, you will qualify for a major league pension, where you do not qualify for that if you're in the minor league waiting for your option to, your, your contract to be purchased. So from a financial perspective, it was good for the players. It may mm-hmm. not have been in the best interest right. of their development. Do you think that... Um, Ty Van Poppel w- would have made more ultimately if he had if he had been given more time in the minor leagues, or you think he did it? It worked out fine for him. I mean, it's impossible to know, right? Like we don't know whether his problems were development or lack of talent. I mean, there are certainly number one picks who have not pitched up to their potential before and and had been on normal contracts and had plenty of time in the minors. And um, you know, I think with Van Poppel. Uh, it might have been a case where, okay. you know, maybe he was just going to bust right. anyway. It's fine with me. I mean, you, you know, you say, you're saying it. Yeah. yeah. I've now analyzed all Todd Van Poppel. I'm not going to make that the title because I don't think that's going to – I don't – I don't – you know, I mean, I'm not slavish to driving – I'm definitely not slavish to driving traffic. I think that 
I think my track record speaks for that. But um, I don't know if people necessarily are going to flock in any sort of numbers to to read about Tom, listen about Tom Van Poppel. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we care if you don't drive traffic. <laughs> we do care if you don't drive traffic away. Okay. All right, you're done. Thank Thank you, uh, Dave Cameron. Hey, stick around for a second, though. Yeah, all right. Thank you, Carson. Yeah, that's uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor, Fangraphs, and Carson Stooley. It's been Fangraphs Audio.